The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Lloyd, today our show is about tools for understanding and transforming your organization, and it deals a lot with healing conflict. And recently, many of you who have been listening to the show know that I was at the Association for Conflict Resolution Conference in New Orleans, and I met this wonderful man who is a professor and an author, and I happened to get his book, The Little Book of Healthy Organizations, Tools for Understanding and Transforming Your Organization by David R. Brubaker, who's on our show with us, and he also has a co-author, Ruth Hoover Zimmerman, but we're speaking today with David. Let me tell you a little bit about his background. He is an associate professor of organizational studies in the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University. And he has more than 25 years of experience in workplace mediation and training and in organizational and congregational consulting. David has consulted and trained with organizations throughout the whole country and in dozens of international settings including Northern Ireland, Mozambique, Angola, Nepal, Myanmar, Egypt, and Jordan. And he's the author of numerous articles on conflict transformation and of Promise and Peril, Understanding and Managing Change and Conflict in Congregations. And that was by the Alban Institute. And then, of course, this book that I I picked up at the conference called The Little Book of Healthy Organizations. So now in this day and age, when we're concerned about a healthy organization and a great workplace and getting people to work and keeping them there, this is always so important. You can learn more about him at www.emu.edu, and then you can just look for David Brubaker. That's B-R-U-B-A-K-E-R. So, David, thank you for joining us all the way from the East Coast. Thank you, Mari. It's really a pleasure to be on your show. Well, it was just such a pleasure to meet you in person and then get you on the show in California. It's great. So let's talk about healthy organizations. What, what does it mean to be a healthy organization? Well, it's a great way to start this interview. And I would suggest that whatever we say about organizations, we can often apply to individuals as well. So one question we could ask is, uh, what does it mean to be a healthy individual, at least in terms of how we are in the world? And I think the same principle applies to organizations, namely that to the degree an organization is consistent in its practices with its stated values and norms and beliefs, 
to the degree that it's consistent in living those out, it tends to be a healthy organization. Of course, that presumes that the values and norms and beliefs are healthy in and of themselves. But so often uh, we see organizations that claim to be about one thing, but in practice are about something else. And that leads to dis-ease, whether you're an individual or an organization. It's the congruence, it's the consistency between who we say we are as an organization, how we say we treat our employees, our customers, our clients, and how we actually treat them that really, I think, demonstrates what a healthy organization looks like. And that takes a lot of introspection, doesn't it? Exactly. Much like an individual, we have to learn to be self-reflective organizations. And that's really a leadership function. If leaders are themselves self-reflective and ask honest questions about their own behavior and get honest feedback from others, then they're often able to do that for the organizations that they lead as well. So really what we want are learning organizations that are constantly engaged in that double-loop learning of looking at their environment, looking at their own practices, reflecting on them, and making adaptive changes as needed to those practices. Yeah, it sounds like they really have to have a consciousness and be conscious of their consciousness, doesn't it? Well said. It, <laughs> it requires a deliberate commitment to be conscious about how we're operating in our communities. If we're an organization, uh, we're based in some physical location or multiple physical locations. So how are we present in those communities? How are we present in terms of our employees, the people that work with us, and how we treat them, again, with our customers and clients? And if, if we are conscious about that, and if we're open to listening, then we start to hear feedback that is something like, you know, hey, you're doing this really well, we appreciate it, or this particular practice or this exchange was harmful or hurtful. And if we hear those things early on, then we can make changes that are responsive to that feedback. Right, and focusing on the positive in our employees and then teaching them positive. And I have two new employees right now, so I'm really relating to that in terms of how do I teach people so that they fit into the system and that they support the kind of ethics that I want to have. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's constant, even for me. Like when you talk about it, it's like your own individual and then the individual for, for the group. I mean, I'm constantly working on trying to stay conscious, and it's not easy, David. Exactly. <laughs> it's a discipline, isn't it? Uh, it because is. I've, I've had to engage in the same discipline myself personally, and often we need another person or persons to help us in that self-reflective task. And so whether we do that with a trusted friend, a spouse, a partner, a therapist, we need others to help us be consciously reflexive. And that's the organization's goal as well, that leaders, especially when they work together as a team, can listen well and get that feedback and then make changes as needed. Yeah. You know, I joined a mastermind group of there's five of us just so that we can do that. We can really ask the difficult questions. And um, they're not part of my organization, but they're outside of it and they make me question and make me wonder what I'm doing and, and answer to them. But I remember I've done some work for tech, which is, you know, that, you know, the executive, I forgot what that C stands for, but that's what they do. They take executives and leadership and help them to, to be conscious about what they're doing because the leaders, if the leaders aren't conscious and they don't know where they're going, obviously the organization isn't going to know where it's going, right? Exactly. And, of course, leaders who want to lead in participatory ways will be constantly seeking feedback and testing ideas. doesn't mean we make all of our decisions by consensus. That's not a realistic goal. 
but it means that leaders are actively soliciting input and even inviting disagreement. They're making it safe for people in the system to disagree with them, uh, inviting conflict to be expressed in healthy ways because that's how we get appropriate feedback. Exactly. So tell us about the organizational tree that you have in this book. It's a very interesting approach. Yeah, I I was teaching organizational studies uh, at Arizona State and was struggling to come up with a metaphor to talk about how to see organizations. We look at organizations as fairly complex systems, and they are, but I've deliberately tried to simplify it through this organizational tree model to see that organizations are organic, which simply means that they're alive, much like a tree is alive, that they're interconnected, that if you uh, touch one part of the system, it can have an effect throughout the whole system. And as you see in this visual model, which I can't, of course, display uh, in a radio interview, <laughs> but the structure of, of a tree uh, is basically its root system, its underlying rootedness, and that's what holds the organization in place if we apply this uh, metaphor or model to the organization itself. Every organization has some sort of structure, an organizational chart. Uh, if it's a country, it has a constitution. And when that is well done, when it's clearly outlined, it defines what roles people have within the organizational system. It even defines often how those roles will be uh, replaced as people come and go. That's important to have an underlying solid structure in an organization or a country, just like it is for a tree. And you notice the trunk then of this tree corresponds with the leadership, those individuals who fill roles in the structure, the formal leadership roles that we have. We also have informal uh, leaders in any organization. But when you think of those who have specific roles, let's say a CEO in a for-profit organization or an executive director in a nonprofit organization, as well as their governing boards, comprise the leadership and other management roles. The way that those leaders function, I think, is much like the trunk of a tree, which is taking nourishment from the roots and bringing it up into the rest of the tree itself. In other words, leaders often are not directly producing the goods and services of the organization, but they are making it possible for others in the system to do so. They're the ones who pass on the nutrients that are needed, the kind of uh, funding and staff support and other resources that are needed for people to get things done at the front lines. That's why leadership matters, because it's not so much about being in charge of everything, but making sure others can do their job effectively. And it sets a tone, and it sets the ethics, and it it has a whole mindset. You know, if you have a leadership that, that really believes in strong ethics and and customer being important and all the good things that that we want to think about in an organization that if they have that and they make that they set that as the trunk as the basis then then that moves up to the other people who are working there whether they're managers or or employees right you said that very well Marty leaders set the tone and just like the trunk of a tree if it's rotten at the trunk, the rest of the tree is going to disintegrate and fall apart. And we've seen this in many examples that we could name, including Enron. When leadership is uh, corrupt or rotten, the organization inevitably falls apart if the board doesn't intervene quickly to deal with it. But healthy trunks are actually uh, somewhat less visible to us. You know, we notice the producing parts of the tree, but the trunk is absolutely essential to holding things in place and moving those nutrients upward, as we talked about. And then you see in the, the leaf and branch system, what I call the organizational culture is a very important part of 
why organizations function the way they do. But just like, like the leaf and branch system uh, of a tree in season, we only see about 10 or 20%. We have to actually climb in the tree. We have to get inside the organization to see that 80 or 90% that isn't so visible to us. And yet culture really matters. It's why when we join an organization, we sometimes don't understand why they do things the way they do. We haven't yet learned the culture. And that's part of understanding an organization. Right. And you talk about it here like it's the beliefs, the values that drive the behavior. So, you know, you have this, like the mission statement. Are they really congruent with their mission statement? That all comes out at that culture, right? Exactly. The culture really defines how we do things around here. And therefore, it's important to learn the culture. And sometimes leaders also have to take steps to change the culture because it is not supporting the stated values and mission of the organization. Culture change is very difficult and usually unsuccessful if one leader tries it all by him or herself. But when working as a team, it is possible to make adaptive changes in a culture that, frankly, makes the organization more life-giving, more congruent with its stated beliefs, norms, and values. Yeah, I think it would be hard when you have a new CEO that comes in. And if the new CEO doesn't ask a lot of questions and find out what, what the concerns are and what the, the values are and all that before he tries to he or she tries to make changes, then it's, it's probably going to be a mess, right? Yes, and we see many empirical examples of that. I tell my students and my clients, organizational clients that I work with, we have to earn the right to make change. You cannot come in and in your first 90 days or 100 days, despite the mythology around a new president, you cannot come in and make major significant changes in that short a period of time without severely disrupting the system and creating a lot of kickback and anger. It usually takes at least a, a year for a new leader to come in, build enough relational capital, and build a team of change agents to bring about successful change. Right. Because people think, like, who are you to come in here and make all these changes? You don't even know us. Bingo. <laughs> yeah, they've not earned the right to make that change. Right. So, so how does an organization shape our identity if we are in that organization? Well, of course, there are multiple shapers of our identity, and probably our family of origin was the first and most significant one. But in addition to families of origin, there are, within the organizational sector, uh, faith communities, for example, that are explicitly in the business of shaping identity. Even a secular organization can shape a person's identity over time as we begin to identify with the beliefs and values of that organization, particularly as we begin to identify with our role in that organizational system, and we start to think of ourselves as a worker or a manager or a, a top executive leader, we can see over time, how those things do indeed shape how people behave in the world, even outside of that organizational context. So given all this, what does it mean to take a systems approach to organization? Well, in the organizational tree metaphor that we were just discussing, we have to see this living organism, the organization, as nested in multiple environments as well. And those environments can include the economic environment, but also even the social political environment and the geographic environment in which it's located. When we take a systems view, we're looking at the whole system. We're looking at that organization, its structure, its culture, its leadership. We're also looking at it in the context of the unique environments in which it's located. And we're basically saying, 
what is working about this organization? What's healthy? It's an appreciative question that we start with. But also, is there something that's not working? And we want to understand that in its entire context, this interconnected organizational system in the multiple environments. We want to look at it systemically because otherwise we'll end up just tweaking one part, not realizing that everything's connected. Right, and that's back to the tree. Like if you just cut off maybe, you know, one branch and you don't get to the point where this is really coming from some kind of fungus somewhere else, then, right? I mean, your whole analogy seems to work even with that. Yes, I, I like the tree analogy because when we're working for organizational health, just like when we're trying to address a tree that might have gotten sick in our backyard and we're wondering what's going on, we have to consider the soil as well and the water that it's receiving or not receiving. So we don't look just at the diseased part. We look at it in the context of the whole and ask what kind of systemic changes do we need to make to bring this whole organism back to health. Yeah, and when we're talking about this this whole radio show is about, you know, healthier systems, healthier communication and healing conflict. You know, change, as you know, and as you state in your book, you know, can cause conflict, obviously. It's, uh, it's, it occurs with regularity in organizations. So help us understand the relationship between the conflict and the change that might need to happen. Well, when I was a relatively new workplace mediator and organizational consultant, I remember hearing a very experienced organizational consultant say, quote, where there's change, there's conflict. He had worked with organizations for decades, and he had just seen that most of the conflicts he was asked to intervene in seemed to emerge in response to, or sometimes even proactively to try to prevent some sort of proposed change. And I think that's generally right. It's not 100% of the time that conflict is related to change. Obviously, you're a very experienced mediator. But I will say with organizations, uh, many times when I come in and start doing interviews or focus groups to understand what's going on in terms of the conflict, people will indeed trace it back to a change that had occurred uh, recently, perhaps in that organization's history, or a change that was currently being disputed. So we want to pay attention to how we introduce change, because as people will often tell me, quote, it's not so much what they did, it's how they did it. Right. They're objecting to the process even more than the content of what was proposed. So we need to pay particular attention to how we're introducing change and the way at which we're trying to move change through the system in ways that it can be acceptable to that organization rather than rejected because they don't like the process. Right. And conflict in itself is not necessarily bad. It depends on how it's used. I mean, conflict can be an impetus for change, for change that's needed. When people are in conflict, often there is something that is bothering them that that, that needs to be addressed. And so if they address it, it could be a change for the good. If people talk about a problem that they, they have and there's a conflict about it, if they problem solve it, then the conflict was really a, a positive thing. Right? Very well said. I agree completely. In fact, I think that's the entire philosophy behind conflict transformation as a movement compared to, say, conflict resolution. So I also don't want to imply that every conflict is bad and needs to be resolved. Uh, some conflicts are bad and need to be resolved. But many conflicts are really the cracks in the system that Ken Cloak talks about. They're showing us that something is not working, and we better pay attention to the noise that's coming from that crack in the system and then conflict can become an impetus for positive change. Right. So it is indeed a cycle. 
And sometimes change causes conflict, sometimes conflict causes change, but both can be productive and positive. Right. And how I feel personally in my own life with my own staff or with people that I'm dealing with and my clients is I feel safer when they tell me that there's a problem. I want to know it. If they tell me I don't take their uh, if their concerns or their criticism as something that I have to be defensive about it, I say, that is helpful information. Tell me more. Let's work it out. Let's figure out what's happening here. So to me, when someone comes to me with a concern before they get out of control, I'm, I'm thrilled because that gives me an opportunity to find some solutions with them. Very well put, uh, Mari. And one of my early mentors, Ron Crable, remember was asked one time by an organizational leader, you know, what's one thing that I could do to have this organization be a better place to deal with conflict? And Ron's immediate response, which I've used many times since, was invite disagreement. Yes. That what you just said, basically be approachable, be confrontable, let people know that it's perfectly safe to come to you when they have a disagreement or a problem because, as you pointed out, then we hear about it early when we can actually do something about it rather than too late when it's escalated out of control. Right, right. To me, I feel much safer. I am so, when people tell me something, if a client tells me I'm, I'm not happy with this or I don't think that this was right or something like that in our mediation, I, I go, thank you, thank you. Let's talk about it. Let me know more about what you're thinking. And often it's just a misunderstanding. And, yeah. and maybe that isn't even something that I did or, you know what I mean? Or at least if there, there is something that uh, happened recently, somebody made a mistake in my office and sent something over and it was a mistake on it. And of course, the client was upset because he's paying money for it. And I said, thank you for telling me this. I didn't even know that this little mistake was on there, but you're right. It shouldn't have gone. It didn't go to anybody, but I, you're right. And it gives me the opportunity to show him that I, I am open and I welcome, like you said, I invite yeah. any kind of concern because... That's that's her reputation, too. Even if you're a large organization, if somebody, if there's a customer who has a problem and you invite them to tell what the problem is, maybe other customers have that same problem, but they're not telling you and they just don't come back. Exactly. And note the link then to being a truly learning organization because leaders and members are asking those questions and inviting disagreement, inviting feedback, so that that information is coming into the system on a fairly regular, frequent basis. We still need to figure out mechanisms to collect that feedback, but at least we're inviting it to come. Right. So if you were talking about how we manage the change in an organization, how do we de-escalate that conflict then? It, it's Normally, it's going to happen. Conflict often, you know, people are, it's not easy to change. I mean, as much as I'm pretty much open to change, even for me, it's, you know, change could be a challenge. You know, it means that you're comfortable in something and all of a sudden you have to do something different. So I think that change can be, re people resist. So what is the best way to make sure that you don't allow that escalation of conflict when you're trying to make a change? Well, we've learned that just like there is an optimal level of stress for individuals, there's also an optimal level of conflict for organizations. In other words, having absolutely no conflict, as you pointed out earlier, probably means that there's not much life in that organization. But when it escalates too high, and we actually have a five-level system that you read about in the little book of Healthy Organizations to identify what level conflict is at, if it gets to level four, 
fight flight or level five intractable, then probably our first goal should be to try to intervene to reduce the intensity of that conflict because by and large people don't negotiate at that level of intensity. So we want to look at uh, what's going on in the organization, how intense is the conflict. If it's level one, two, or three, it's quite manageable through dialogue, negotiation, mediation if needed. But if it's level four or five, then we often will need to introduce a process whereby people know that concerns will be heard, uh, ideas will be collected, we will make some recommendations on how to deal with it, that some fair process has been put in place. And I've seen that nine times out of ten just announcing that there will be a fair process reduces the conflict intensity because people start to believe somebody will do something uh, to try to address this. And there are many strategies that we would have. Certainly getting people together for mediation is one of the most effective strategies, but there are other dialogue tools beyond mediation that we can use, such as various circle processes that are very effective. And sometimes, frankly, leaders need to make a decision. Uh, there can be conflict in an organization because something has gone on and gone on and gone on and not been resolved, and people need it to be resolved even if there will be some people unhappy about the ultimate resolution. So there are various mechanisms that we have. You'd be very familiar with them and probably your listeners as well. We need to know, let people know what will be done, who will be leading the process, and when it will be concluded so they can relax about what's going on. Yeah, I think knowing when, if we talk about it, like if you just make an announcement, we're going to do something and no one knows when it's going to happen and they're just anxious about that, that's another problem. Well, we only have about a minute left, but I just wondered if you could tell us what you see in the future of how organizations will better manage conflict. Well, I see lots of positive signs in all three sectors of organizational life. That would be within the corporate or for-profit side, as well as the government sector and the nonprofit sector. Probably the most significant development from my perspective is the growth of ombuds agencies. This is the role of the traditional ombudsman or ombudsperson who is providing conflict management system for the organization. Granted, it's more likely in larger organizations than smaller ones, but there are ways that we can institutionalize or normalize conflict management in smaller organizations as well. But having an ombudsperson within an organization allows people to come, just talk about disagreements when they're small, how to deal with them, often get coaching on going back to a person and resolving a conflict. If not, they typically offer mediation services and other kind of resources as well. We need to increasingly see conflict as simply a normal part of organizational life, but have skilled people in the organizational system to help us deal with it. I think that's terrific, and I, I thank you again for writing this great little book, The Little Book of Healthy Organizations, Tools for Understanding and Transforming Your Organization by David R. Brubaker and Ruth Hoover Zimmerman. And why don't you just give your website, and then it'll be time to go. Yes, uh, that time did go very quickly. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure talking with you, and people can get a hold of us at www.emu dot edu slash cjp that's for the center for justice and peace building and there a number of our courses and summer courses are mentioned as well as other resources that we offer well thank you so much david you're really terrific and we'll have you back again and hope to see you again soon thank you mari it's been a great pleasure okay bye-bye bye-bye you've been listening to kuci 88.9 fm Irvine and kuci.org on the net i'm mari frank host of prescriptions for healing conflict And listen to us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here. And also please visit our website at conflicthealing.com 
where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts. You can listen to archived interviews. And you can write us emails about concerns that you have about conflict in your own life or your organization. So thanks for listening and join us next week. Thanks. in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.